0: Father, we thank you again for their salvation that we do not earn and we do not deserve, but that you have graciously given to us through the person of Jesus Christ, the God-man Savior. We ask that your Holy Spirit illuminate our hearts tonight as we seek to see how a great apostle utilized the Word of God in an actual confrontation of culture, and that we may learn from this confrontation how to handle ourselves when we too are involved in this, not only in the public external arena, but also in the depths of our heart as we wrestle uh, day by day with our own unbelief. For we ask this in Christ's name, amen. We're working through Acts as sort of a preliminary to uh, our time in the uh, New Testament and the church age this year. And I'm doing this because I think it's important to watch how a biblical framework is actually used. Um, the approach that I've adopted over the years here isn't something that I just dreamed up. Um, it's something that um, emerges when you look at how the great authors of Scripture, when they gave addresses, Stephen in the book of Acts chapter 7, Paul here in Acts 17. If you watch how the biblical leaders handle themselves in a public discussion of the faith, you will observe that they utilize this sequence of events, the doctrines that they they obtained from the Word of God and from history. So once again, um, we're going to go back to Acts 17, and you've been given uh, tonight sort of an outline. in which I'm trying to show you how Paul is utilizing this frame of reference. Uh, Before we get to that, however, we also handed out last time a little track, um, Christian at Ease, which is really a condensation of a larger uh, publication uh, of uh, Bob Themes, done many, many, many years ago. Um, But I asked if you would look carefully uh, at one part of that uh, booklet, and that is uh, on pages 15, 16, and 17. Um, one of the reasons I've always respected uh, Bob as uh, Bob Theme as a as a teacher of the Word is because he actually, back 50 years ago when he started his ministry, he was one who brought into the pulpit. Um, an unabashed use of languages, the biblical languages. Uh, It was thought to be sort of uh, not appropriate to do. And he proved that it is appropriate to do. And what was so funny about those years when he did that was that he had come out of World War II where he had trained soldiers. Um, He became a lieutenant colonel at 26, which shows you if you know anything about the military, that's a very unusual career. Um, uh, a promotion to be a lieutenant colonel at 26. Most people wait until they're 46 before they make that. So um, his strength has always been bringing uh, clarity of military procedures uh, into the pulpit. And this affects some people one way and affects a lot of people another way. But on pages 15, 16, and 17 of this pamphlet, as an illustration of what he does. And in this particular section, I'm going to follow these three steps, but I'm going to add something that is not in the pamphlet. And that is going to be something that I want you to see about the framework before we go any further. Because it dawns on me that when we put the apologetic component, into this threefold cord that cannot quickly be broken. Remember we said that what our approach is in the framework is to go through the biblical stories, which gives us history, actual objective history. And by doing that, you remember, that takes it out of the subjective. It's no longer your personal experience, my personal experience, or anybody else's personal experience. It's public history, objective history. Second thing that we said, we always bring out the Biblical truth, the Bible doctrine. Third thing we said was that we always try to oppose the Biblical doctrine with unbelief. Because I think you'll learn better, I've always learned better, when there's a debate, when there's something active going on, not just sitting there passively taking in what is truth, when we don't even know what isn't truth. So, the apologetic dimension is important. And it's dawning on me that actually it's also important for us in our personal lives because when we struggle with temptations or we struggle with lack of faith in our lives, what are we really struggling with? We're struggling against the spirit of this world. And what is it that comes to verbalization in the mouth of the pagans? The spirit of this world. So, it's the same thing. So, whereas when we start looking at Acts 17, which we will in a few minutes, we are looking at a public hearing, a confrontation between a representative of Jerusalem, Paul, and the representatives of Athens, standing for the highest pagan culture. And they're in collision in a public hearing. And we're going to watch how in collision they are. But this collision is not something that you and I aren't connected with. You make uh, it's too dangerous to look at Acts 17 and say, well, gee, that's a public hearing, and gee, I'm not the Apostle Paul, and gee, that doesn't really apply because I'd never be in that situation. Well, baloney. Uh, we're in that same position daily because we're coming up against the spirit of this world. So it's the same sort of thing. So that's the component I want to add to this faith-rest drill. So if you look at page 15, uh, the first one, the first point in this drill is... And uh, again, this is a suggested procedure, um, but his first point here is, claim a promise. Nothing radical about that, Christians have been doing that for a number of centuries. But if you look further, there's a reason, just above where you see step one, there's a sentence that's very important. And if you look down where it says uh, there are three steps of faith to rest, these form an effective drill to follow, shock or pressure. Now, see that sense of shock or pressure? Now, watch, watch it. Because remember, here's a guy who's trained soldiers to go into battle. And he knows what he's talking about. And over the years, he's watched the analog in the Christian life. Same thing. Shock or pressure may cause your emotions to rise up and revolt within your soul. By that he means out of control. Where the emotions so dominate that you can barely think. That's what he's taught. That condition. This may destroy your concentration and temporarily obliterate the Bible doctrine you've learned. And I think we've all been in that situation. That is not too hard to conceive of. So we all know what he's talking about. And that's the point of step one, is that in step one there's nothing that's involved and deep at that point. Step one in the faith rest drill is simply to grab a promise that happened to be floating around in your mind. Obviously there has to be something in your mind to grab hold of. And should be some promises there. And you grab one of those things And as he says, under step one, uh, recall a promise in the Word of God, think of what the promise means, realize in the divine viewpoint your situation is not hopeless, God is still in control, and as always, He has you in His arms. Now, the last sentence of that section, this realization quiets your fears and enables you to use the Bible doctrine you do know. So, the act that first step in the faith rest drill of going to deliberately claim a promise is a choice. It is a choice to step out of the chaos of emotion and do something. So right there, your choice is being exercised. Now right at that point, you're not going for, for broke. You're not getting involved in a big, uh, deep thing. It's just getting the chooser to focus on a fragment of the Word of God that happens to be around. Because that first act, that first step of the faith rest drill is what permits you to go to step two. Obviously you can't go to step two until you do step one. And step one is that process and it's, it's, it's a choice. It's a choice to say, wait a minute, I am, by choice, I am going to grab hold of a fragment of scripture that is in my heart. Now, once that choice is made, and you've got to grab a grip on it, now we use the promise in a rationale. Now, what do we mean by using it in a rationale? Here's where the frame of reference comes into play. Because, like he says... Every biblical promise is backed by a doctrine or a series of doctrines. Your faith, and then he goes on, he says, a logical process of moving toward a biblical conclusion. So at step two, after you've climbed out of the river of emotions to at least claim something, you've got the something. Now what do you do with this something, this scripture fragment? Well, now is where you start to tie it in with various ways. Now, he suggests several rationales, the last paragraph on page 16. And these are good rationales. Now, I'm not personally going, I'm going to show you, illustrate one of them for you tonight. But these are very legitimate rationales. What I'm going to do, though, since we've gone through the framework, I want to show you how you can go back to the framework, those of you who have been here for over the years, and you can pull these pieces out. But in, in this last paragraph, page 16, he, he lists one, his three rationales he has there. One, the logistical grace rationale. Now, what does he mean by logistical grace? Well, what do you mean by logistics? Supplies. God supplies our need. So, in that rationale, you focus on God's grace in supplying your needs. So, that's why he calls it the logistical grace rationale. And you can think how God supplied uh, Israel out in the desert with shoes, God supplied them with manna, God supplied them with clothes that didn't wear out, God supplied David, and you can go start rehearsing all the supply, all the manifestation of God's logistical grace that you observe in Scripture. And we haven't got in the New Testament yet, so we're not using examples out of the New Testament. We're going to use examples out of the Old Testament. Um, then his second rationale in that same paragraph, you'll see where he goes and he says, the plan of God rationale. That's another approach. You see, this as many approaches there are people here. Uh, these aren't exhaustive. These are suggestions. So if you go the plan of God rationale, you think about God's overall program from eternity to eternity. And you remember the call of Abraham. The call of Abraham elected Abraham out of the paganization of society, paganization of civilization, and God started a counterculture. And God promises that he has a plan for the salvation of man, and that plan is not going to stop because Satan objects to it. The gates of hell are not going to prevail against it, and God's plan is going to go on and will be finished, period. No impediment. So that's the plan of God rationale. Now, if you go back up to the last sentence before this paragraph, you see where he says your faith rest becomes more effective as it clings to a larger rock, as it weaves into a thicker rope, as it claims a whole complex of basic Bible doctrines. See, this is where the energy and the strength comes from the faith. You grab the promise first, but you don't stop there by just grabbing the promise. Now, you use that as a handle so that now the um, the brain starts working instead of emoting, and now it's capable of passing to stage two, which is to start thinking through these things and reviewing them. So here, it says, he, he says, the... Uh, Essence of God rationale. That's the third one. That's another approach you can use. What is the essence of God rationale? To go through the attributes of God. When we were raising our children, one of the things that Carol did every single night was she had this little song that she made up and she sang the attributes of God to all four of those boys. And when they were out in the street, when they were out with their grandmother, when they were out with kids, they'd come out with omniscience, omnipresence, and everything. Oh, everybody's wondering where they learned those. But they not only learned the words, they knew what it meant. Today, they'd have to have the ACLU give them permission to something to do that. But the point is that that recital over and over and over and over, the essence of God, God is omniscient, God is omnipotent. Yeah, it's drill, yeah, it's repetition, but, you see, here's, the, here's why uh, Bob is very effective in his teaching technique, particularly in those years of 60, in the 60s and 70s, because it, he emphasized repetition. How do military people train? By repetition, over and over and over. Now, why did they train over and over and over? So it becomes automatic. Why do they want everything automatic? Because in the middle of a conflict, and the bullets are flying around, you don't have time to think, you only have time to react. And if there's an emergency or there's something like that, you have to have those responses groomed in. And that only happens by drill, 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 and more drill. So that's why he's going into this drill thing. And his rationales, he has the first one, the logistical grace rationale, there's number one. There's the plan of God rationale, and now this is the essence of God rationale. So those are ways of interlocking the promise of God onto a base of truth. Okay? Now let's take a promise. If you turn in the Old Testament, one that was quoted in this pamphlet earlier, turn to Isaiah chapter 40. Great chapter in the Old Testament. Now this would be a typical promise that we might remember. I never can remember them in the New Translations because when I was a young Christian, I learned a lot of these when I was reading the King James, and so I just easier for me to remember it in the King James than in his New Translation. But in Isaiah 40, verses 29, 30, and 31, this is a promise series. that been in Navigators, or you've been in Bible memory courses, somewhere along the line, you've run across this one. It's a very familiar one. He gives strength to the weary. To them who lack might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, vigorous young men stumble. Those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not get tired. They shall walk and not be weary. It's one of the things that was used in the chariots of fire, by the way, in that script that was written. If you remember, it had music going. and This this was um, being recited. All right, there's a promise. Now... In an actual situation in life, you might not remember all that promise. You might remember just a fragment of that. Say, for example, uh, you remember verse 29. He gives strength to them that have no might. Uh, And that's all you can think of. You can't even think of the rest of it. But you at least got a fragment to grab hold of in that situation. Okay, now, having grabbed hold of that, what's the next thing? We start developing a rationale. Now, verse 29, verse 30, and verse 31 in context is this promise. But the Word of God itself provides the rationale in this case, and that's why I wanted to take you to this passage, because if you back up one verse, there's the rationale. And you see how neatly the prophet Isaiah locked verse 29, verse 30, and verse 31 to verse 28. And in verse 28, what doctrine is that? Think of the event. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, he doesn't become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. Now, there's two things to notice about this. First, well, several things to notice about it. This is the creator creature. Rationale. There it is again. Create a creature difference. And it's said that the creator of the ends of the earth, that's the extremities of the earth, it means he created the whole thing. The everlasting God, that's an emphasis on, because of the creator-creature distinction, the fact that he's eternal, and what is the creature? Creature is temporal. Okay? So let's wa- walk through verse 28 and watch the logic, which is the rationale behind the promise of verse 29, 30, and 31. The everlasting God, the Lord... The creator of the ends of the earth does not become weary or tired. What divine attribute? Omnipotence. Okay? So now we're back. We've added to the creator-creature distinction. We've shown here God is eternal. We've added to that God is omnipotent. And what do we say is the human analog of omnipotence? We're made in God's image. We're finite replicas. What do we have in our lives that corresponds to His omnipotence? Corresponds, not equal to. Energy. And what's the situation verse 29, 30, and 31 with regard to energy? The tanks run low. Not much energy. So what does the Word of God say? What attribute in particular is brought into the play here? God's omnipotence. Now, why is it? But you see, there's a a rationale here. The Holy Spirit wrote the text. He takes the problem that is being dealt with in verses 29, 30, and 31. He immediately, of all the attributes of God, he grabs the one that's exactly opposite to the situation and brings it in there. The one that's hurting is the tiredness, is the fatigue, it's the lack of energy, the fact I can't go on anymore. I'm I'm phasing out here. And what does he do? He focuses it from the creature back onto the Creator and causes us to behold His omnipotence. He is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we can ask or think. What is the second attribute that you notice in verse 28? After God's omnipotence, what's the next one that you see there? Omniscience. That's right. In other words, His understanding is inscrutable, it's incomprehensible. Now, that's a a puzzle. Why do you suppose faced with a situation verses 28, 29, and 30 that attribute comes up now the Holy Spirit wrote this he knows what he's doing why did he bring omniscience in? why didn't he bring love? why didn't he bring something else in? he could have brought any of them in but why do you suppose in this case omniscience is brought into the situation? anybody have any ideas? yes Okay? Okay, one of the thing, obvious things is omniscience applies immediately because that assures me he understands my situation. That assures me he is aware of my situation. And there's something else why he brought omniscience in. Not only does he understand my situation, but one of the factors that enervates you. When you you get exhausted and you get tired, and and I think the tiredness in verse 30 and 31 here is a tiredness, it's a fatigue of the mind, not just this, this metaphor involved in this. This is not just physical fatigue. It's fatigue of the whole mind. Now, when you're in a mode like that, when you're so tired, you just want to give up, the problem often is what? As far as the order, rationale in our lives. It's been fractured. What's terribly thwarting is the chaos level. In other words, it's not just that you're tired, it's the fact that, you know, I try to cope with this situation, that goes to pot. and I try to go over here and that falls apart. And it's that thwarting that comes from, you know, what is going... Every plan I make goes to to pieces here. And that's that's what takes us down often. So what God does here is, he brings in the omniscience, which assures us... See, this is almost back to the plan of God rationale, that he does know what he's doing. He may not share that understanding with us right this moment... But we know there is a plan and that chaos is apparent, not real. Appearances, you know, things are not as they appear. And we have to keep reminding ourselves of that. Things are not as they first appear. And on the surface, they may appear in chaos. But behind the chaos, there is a plan. So here's the rationale developed from the promise that is given here. Okay? Now, step three in the drill. If you turn to the pamphlet now, and you look at step three, reach doctrinal conclusions. Doctrinal rationales lead to doctrinal conclusions. One of the greatest conclusions is Romans 8.31. What shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Now, follow that next paragraph. Some important things are said there. When you move through the faith rest drill, you come to the point where you actually believe the conclusion rather than merely repeating it by rote. See what he's getting at? Now, this is a spiritual transaction. There's no mechanical drill that can assure this. I mean, he puts it in the form of a drill, but don't fool yourself. This is not a psychologically mechanical thing here. There's a spiritual transform that happens somewhere during this process that explodes into a confidence by step three, a confidence in the Lord. And that confidence is what was lacking at point one. And the confidence comes about by cycling the Word of God through your soul, through your mind. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So we may have heard the Word of God 32 and a half times in the last five months, and, but at that point, it's down in the basement, and we're floating around grabbing solar stuff. we just got to grab a fragment and pull it up and start recycling the Word of God through our, through our spirit, through our mind. And when that happens, then we have confidence. We come to a conclusion, like we say. It's not any longer repeated by rote, it's freely believed and he adds another practical point down at the last bottom of page 17 there's a sentence that starts faith rest may take 30 seconds or much longer depending on numerous factors you may need to circle back and repeat a stage or start all over from the beginning as fear crops up again so this is not a one-shot thing sometimes it has to recycle and recycle. But at least if you can grab this concept of the faith rest drill, this is a problem-solving device of the Word of God that we all have. We all vaguely are aware of it. It's not radically new, but the point is that there is the three-step approach. Now, on top of that, I want to mention something else. And I said I would add a dimension to this thing. When we're in step two, And in step three, if we look at things the way the biblical authors looked at them, including Paul in Acts 17, you will see that something else is also happening. They are not merely cycling the word of God in their minds. They are actively putting down unbelief, casting down vain imaginations and every high thing. There's two things that are really going on here. And the way to cast it down is to deflate it. Now, the spirit of this world is a windbag. And it can get very big. I inflate weather balloons out there at Aberdeen Proving Ground. You inflate one of those suckers with a lot, of one-third of a cylinder of helium, and you better hold on. Because there's a lot of lift to that thing, and it's big. In fact, one clown in L.A., the story of him putting weather, putting, got a bunch of weather balloons and put on his lawn chair and it took him up to 10,000 feet and he was, he was floating around the airspace and he approached to L.A. airport and some pilot, <laughs> what the heck is this I'm seeing here, and they had to send a helicopter after this guy and it was a big massive problem. You know, he thought he was going to just boom, boom, boom on the balloons and he forgot that there's quite a bit of lift in those things. Wow. Well, the way you reduce their size is you puncture them. Now, how do you puncture virile, scary unbelief? The Bible's answer to that is you expose its foolishness. Unbelief is a cosmic joke. And it's got to be... the the sanctified way of dealing with it is To get to the point where you can, in faith, laugh at it. Ridicule it. Now, isn't that stupid? And in your own heart, I mean, not laughing at necessary people, but the fact of the matter is that to be able to say, now, isn't that idea stupid? But you can't get there right away until you go through this faith rest drill, because somewhere along this rationale is where that faith is growing. To cope with this. And when you lock on, and you can see that, well, wait a minute, God is the creator. I'm only a creature. God is omnipotent. God is the source of energy. He never gets tired. And God has a plan for my life. He's aware of my situation. This is not a crazy situation. And then, to then turn around and say, wait a minute, what unbelief is is a setup. Remember the continuity of being thing? The idea that the creation, the creature is God? And what are we just saying? Wait a minute. The creatures can't be God. Look at this creature. This one's all tired. This creature doesn't know what he's doing. And we're getting tempted to think that we're God? What a joke. So along with the positive faith in the Word of God, there's this put down of the spirit of this world that's going on and this constant oscillation between the confidence in the word of God and the foolishness and idiocy of the world is what finally gives you that strength so yeah you can be pushed around you can be shoved around you can be hurt it doesn't mean you 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 don't get hurt but it means that you don't get totally knocked off your feet thinking that everything's collapsed or thinking that the Word of God might not, rob, gosh, you know, this might not work. Might work for them, but it doesn't work for me, kind of thing. So it's, uh, it's what that process is actually, it's the work of the apologetic in our hearts. So now we want to go to Acts 17 and watch how Paul's dealing with this thing. So if you look at the outline and turn in your Bibles to Acts 17, we'll follow him as he goes through his hearing. And just keep in mind the perspective, what Paul is doing here. He could have reacted and said, you know, I've been debating this, and gosh, you know, maybe those philosophers in Athens, they might have some good ideas. I better listen to them. Maybe I'm not so sure what I believe. Uh, maybe, maybe they've come up with something new here. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm screwed up. So th- at that point, Paul would ba- start backing up. He'd start treading water. Well, that's not what's going to happen here. And we noticed, if you look in, on the outline now, we, we covered part of that last week. Hopefully we'll finish that part of it this week. You'll notice in Acts 22, to review... When he starts out, we have put it in the column, a column on the left, column on the right, column on the left is Jerusalem, column on the right is Athens, column on the left is biblical faith, column on the right is pagan belief. So you want to put these against each other and watch what Paul's doing. He starts in verse 22 and he says of the people in Athens that they are very religious. Look on your sheet and you'll see all men what is he going back to? Let's get the picture. He's going back to the most fundamental thing in our framework. He's going back to the creation. And it's got the creation that he has to go back to in order to be able to talk about the God of the scriptures. You define God... In Scripture, his character is always defined in connection with one of two things, creation or redemption. He is the Lord of the creation or he is the Lord of redemption. And that's how he's defined. So Paul goes back to creation. So see, here he goes. First shot out of the, out of the, out of the gun in, in verse 22, he goes back to the very start of the biblical frame of reference. He says, I observe that you're very religious. How does he know that? He's gone around and he's looked at statues. He's gone around and seen the great interest that the Athenians had in trying to solve the problem of existence and meaning. Everywhere, every one of those gods and goddesses is a monument to someone's attempt to say, that's the key to life. That's the key. And what Paul said, yeah, there's a key to life, but not that key. But your constant quest, artistically, uh, architecturally, spiritually, all of it betrays the fact that you keep denying this, but you're God conscious, and he knows that because what does the Bible say in Genesis 1 about man? Man is made in God's image. Does that say only believers are made in God's image? Does that say only People in uh, churches are made in God's image. No, it says that all men are made in God's image, including atheists. Atheists are made in God's image. Unbelievers are made in God's image. So Paul doesn't fear these people. It's not some new breed of humanity that's, that's uh, sort of rabid, that's, that's can't—you know—it's not part of the human race. No, they're part of the human race. And by looking at Scripture and defining God and man. In the light of creation, we can approach them on our terms, not their terms. We're not approaching these people as innocently ignorant creatures that are sitting out there in the world of dum-dum and never heard about God. They're not blank slates. There's a whole theory of education, the tabula rosa, the idea that kids come into the world with a blank slate. They don't come into the world with a blank slate. They come into the world fully equipped. Oh, we're these guys that get doctorates and education. They I must mean, never have kids or something. Kids come into the world all equipped and aware of God's existence. Remember the story of Helen Keller, blind, and her mentor was about, at one point in that girl's life, was saying, oh man, now I'm going to have to teach Helen Keller about God. And started to teach her about God. She said, I already know about that. How would she know about God? Nobody talked to her. Didn't go to Sunday school. How did you where did they come from? God consciousness. Man is made in God's image. He knows he's made in God's image. He's fooling himself to deny it. So Paul doesn't... He brushes it aside. He starts right out in verse 22 with a doctrine of man taken from the divine viewpoint frame of reference. And he says, You are very religious. And if you look in the chart... What I've tried to do on the right side of that chart is show you the fact that, as I said last time, recognize this about unbelief. Unbelief is structurally hypocritical. Now, I know most of the times they accuse Christians of being hypocrites because we don't act like Jesus. But that's not uh, a charge against the irrationality of Christianity. It's just a charge against our disobedience, that's all. But that doesn't invalidate the system. I mean, you know, if somebody keeps after you about that hypocrisy, you know what you can go right back on saying, well, you better be glad that there's enough grace that you see. You ought to see me if I wasn't a Christian. So that's a quick put-down to solve that problem. But the point is that unbelief is structurally hypocritical. It's always got a lie and a truth. And so on the right side, on that column, opposite verse 22, you'll see where I said, Athens denies God-consciousness. They have to deny God-consciousness, you think about it. They have to deny God-consciousness. What would happen if they admitted it? They would have to admit they're personally responsible to God. And we don't want to do that in unbelief. So unbelief has to deny that it's conscious of God. It's got to try to convince itself that, well, I'm not really sure that God exists. Ah, oh, you know, it's not quite clear to me. And if, if that were really true, then you wouldn't be held accountable for disobeying it. So unbelief has to deny God consciousness. However, it also has to admit consequences of God consciousness, such as moral judgments and capacity to reason in terms of universal categories. Those are logically there only because we're made in God's image. What makes us think of absolute morals? Because we're made in God's image and we know intuitively that God is holy, that there are universal moral standards. Everybody knows that even the drug dealer whose check bounces. And people reason in terms of universal categories. So here they are, denying on the one hand that they're creatures made in God's image, denying that they're aware of God, and on the other hand, freely using all these absolutes and everything else like they just hang there in thin air, when they only make sense if we're creatures made in God's image. Okay, verse 23 Paul goes further. And he says, for while was passing through, and he describes why he concluded what they were doing. And at the end of verse 23, you remember, he noted something in their admission. That they admit their knowledge is incomplete. Their knowledge is incomplete. Now, if you look at the chart, Paul knows this because in the left column, what is the doctrine of creation? The doctrine of creation says man is Not God. And his knowledge is therefore limited. So Paul knows that. He knows the doctrine of God, man, and nature. And what does the unbeliever do? Verse 23, right column. The unbeliever denies his need to rely upon a source of rationality in the Creator. He believes, and the Athenians were great at this, the one civilization on the face of the planet that believed in absolute rational power of the human intellect, it was Greece. So they deny that they have to go outside of my brain to hold on to rationality. That rationality is accessible, whether in a Platonic sense or in a more modern sense, in here in the head. Rationality is attainable. I don't need your God. I don't need God to think. So they deny that they have to have an external source of their rationality, okay? But on the other hand, they have to admit that there are gaps in their knowledge. But if they admit there's gaps in their knowledge, how can they be sure that they have absolute rationality? So what we're showing here is the inherent foolishness of unbelief. And Paul knew this. Next time, and by the way, next week we won't have class. i try tried to get a plane to get back here from my travels before the class time, and I can't get it. So... Excuse me, but we won't have class next week. But the next time we meet, we're going to go into one more passage in the New Testament where this foolishness theme comes up. And, I want, and it's going to be a passage in Scripture that was written after this incident in Acts 17. So we want to, sh- to show you how he's rocking back and forth between truth and deception, between what is solid, believable, and I can trust it against that which is absolutely foolish, hypocritical, and self-contradictory. Okay, verses 24 and 25. Here's where, again, he brings in creation. So look at verse 22, verse 23, and verse 24 in the column on the left, on your sheet, and you'll see it's creation, creation, creation. Doctrine of God, man, and nature. Doctrine of God, man, and nature. Doctrine of God, man, and nature. What is Paul doing here in this public hearing? He's utilizing the foundation of the biblical frame of reference. And then you hear these... Christians go around, I don't believe in creation. I don't think we should emphasize that splits people. Well, what is Paul doing here? Yeah, it splits people into believing and unbelievers. You bet. That's why we use it. That. where else do you go to define God? So, isn't it interesting? Bang, 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 bang in this confrontation. Creation, 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 creation. Heading it. God who made the world all things in it. He doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. And he quotes at the end of verse 25, as though he needs gives all things breath and so on. In verse 24 and 25, looking at your chart, left column, you'll notice that he also brings in another aspect of Old Testament culture, which was the golden era of Solomon. Why does he bring up that? Because that's when the temple was made, and that's when Solomon prayed the prayer that God does not dwell in a temple made with hands. Why does he pick up the golden era of Solomon? Where was the highest culture biblically in history? When did biblical faith create a nation and have artistic expression that has never since been seen by the world? the golden era of Solomon. So, here he's going through, and he's picking out pieces here and there from the frame of reference, getting his doctrine, putting in his gun, and firing, bang, 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 bang. That's where he's getting the bullets. This is the arsenal that he is using to load his weapon as he goes into this confrontation. So, looking on our chart again, on the left column, verses 24 and 25, he, he, he goes to creation. I've given you the Old Testament references. You can look them up yourself. The golden era of Solomon, the high culture expression of the created creature distinction in architecture and literature. Now come over to the right column and let's see what the unbeliever is doing. Paul recognizes the inherent hypocrisy of unbelief, and he's he's he's, he's attacking it. Note unbelief denies human capacities for intellectual and imaginative art, architecture, and speculation and service derived from the Creator. In other words, it gets back to the same thing. That these qualities of intellectual and imagination that you used in art and all the rest of areas of life, just somehow are there in the human mind. And yet, at the same time, The very qualities of intellectual and imaginative art are used to make what? That he sees all over the streets of Athens. Gods, goddesses, temples. Why are they doing this? Why don't they just build houses? Why are they spending so much time with these gods, goddesses, and temples? Because inherently they're admitting there's something external to man and I have got to get hold of that and I've got to make sense of my life and so I, I this is my creation I this is my big worldview in those cases I carve it in granite that's my worldview so notice what he's doing here we've gone through three rows on that chart Verse 22, verse 23, verse 24 and 25. In each case, he's he's affirming the creation and the creation culture over against the hypocrisy of unbelief. Now, you suppose that you did this for about 15 years that you would be impressed because some unbeliever said something to you? I mean, just think about it. Paul was not intimidated by anybody. That's why he could be beaten, put in jail. Go ahead, put me in jail. I'm got to change my mind. I think you're stupid. Then I'll laugh at you from in jail. And that was the attitude. Not demeaning the people now, but just saying, you know, you people are so seriously screwed up. It's pathet- you are pathetic. Illustrations of what the human race looks like. Reminds me of the, stu- the uh, restatement that uh, Cal Thomas made when he was interviewed by Phil Donahue years ago. Phil Donahue was yak yakking on it was when the the Tammy Baker scandal was going on in evangelicalism and Phil Donahue had his big finger waving it in Cal's face about, see you Christians representative of evangelical pastors and you are of manhood and said it right out on TV now people sometimes they don't like that and I'll tell you why they don't like it, because they're, they love to dish it out, but they can't take it when a Christian stands up and puts it right back on them. And it's time some of us started doing that. It can be done graciously, but it can be done firmly. Paul was not about to back up in a public hearing in Athens. And so what he's doing, he's going after their whole worldview. He's not just attacking the way they part their hair. He's going after their whole worldview, right down at the foundations. Remember the picture I always said of the interior decorator showed up with a bulldozer? That's what he's doing here. When he gets done, they don't have a worldview. Okay, now in verse 26 and 27, let's read this one. We said he made from one every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation that they should seek God if they might grope for him and find him, though he be not far from each one of us. Now, that is a direct assault on the Greek view of history in several ways. If you look at your chart now, go back to the chart, the fourth row, verses 26 and 27, left-hand column notice what he's bringing up now he doesn't mention these but the idea is there and i'll show you where the idea is there in verse 26 where it says he made from one every nation of man now where does the bible tell you about the making of every nation what is that chapter called i remember it's a very famous title of a very famous section of the old testament genesis chapter 10 it's called the table of nations that's the outline of history so when he says he made from one every nation of men, what do you suppose he has in mind? The biblical view of history. To live on all the face of the earth. He's talking about Greeks here? All the face of the earth? No, he's talking about plural nations. Greeks and non-Greeks, having determined their times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they should seek God. Now, in history, when civilization apostatized, what step did God do that's given in the Old Testament to correct, ameliorate, and retard the paganization of Noahic civilization? Remember what that act was? After the flood, after the Noah had colonized the earth and defections had begun to happen, what did God do? He called out Abraham. Now, why did he call Abraham out? To be a vehicle for the preservation of the Word of God and the lineage of the Messiah. So what is the purpose of history then? If the purpose of history were not coming to know God, God would have ended it right here. Why did God bother to call Abraham out? In order to save history, to save man. So, in verse 27, where you have the purpose clause that... And by the way, verse 27 ought to be taught in every history course. Think about it. In all your education, in all the hours you spent in a classroom as a young person, were you ever, at any point, ever told about the purpose of history? Or were you just fed a pile of facts and expected to burp it up next week's test? You see, you learn the wrong way. No wonder nobody wants to learn. Who wants to learn a burnt pile of dates that mean nothing? But here is the purpose of history. Verse 27, one of the most powerful verses in all the New Testament, summarizes it right in one clause. I mean, talk about saving print in a history book. My goodness, it wouldn't take one line to put this in there. This is the purpose of history, that men come to know God. And if that's the purpose of history, then all other parts of history are subsidiary to that. So it's a whole philosophy of history. So again, looking at your chart, left column, he goes back to creation and the Noahic Covenant, the racial unity of mankind. He implicitly is recognizing the call of Abraham for the redemption, the purpose of historical experience, doctrine of man and nature. And by the way, what are the doctrines here in the call of Abraham? The election, justification of faith. The decline and fall of the kingdom because he is quoting the prophets. Now, when he gets into that verse where if they might grope after him, it's a fourth class if in the Greek language, which means probably not going to do it. But it's the idea that Men are blinded, but they still remember there's something out there. And the picture is a blind man groping. Now, what a flattering picture of history this is to man. If you're an artist or a cartoonist, you like to play with cartoons, here's a challenge for you. Draw a cartoon that shows the purpose of history of the blind man groping around. Try to think about how you draw that. And if you can, you've got the idea of Paul. That's the purpose of history. We've got a group of blind idiots trying to find where the door is. What an unflattering picture of the human race. Now where, if he's talking about blind people groping, where does he get that from? What part of the Divine Viewpoint Framework? What part of this Does he go? What do you suppose he went to? Well, he's quoting from some of the prophets, so we know he went down into here, the kingdom decline and the exile. Now, exile, that's where he got some of this material from. But this material, which talks about sin, chastening, sanctification, that in turn surfaces what earlier doctrine? What earlier event? Where do you trace sin back to? The fall. The origin of evil. So all that's brought in here. And on the right side, in your study there, in verses 26 and 27, look what paganism has to do. And we've seen what Paul is doing. What What was the pagan mind, the mentality on this? The pagan mind denies that vulnerability of nations in history is due to a purpose of the Creator. That's one thing. They recognize this vulnerability, but it's due to natural causes, you know, global warming or something. But it's certainly not due to the purpose of the Creator. Or if you're a Marxist, you think, oh, it's because of the bourgeoisie control all the means of production. Some economic force is causing all the evil. So, men will recognize vulnerability, but they will not say that the vulnerability is due to the Creator. Moreover, they would deny the monogenetic origin of human cultures. Most pagan positions have historically held to a polygenetic origin of human race. Polygenetic, many genetic. In other words, you had this race, this race, I don't know where they all came from, maybe this came from white monkeys and that came from black monkeys, I don't know. Uh, So the human race had different origin points. Now, they're getting away from that now because of genetics, but in, pre- in previous times, it was thought to be a polygenetic. In other words, the human race had evolved in many branches on the tree. And this is the arrogance of the Western white uh, European, where he thought he could go and conquer the whole world and put everybody else with brown and black skin under him, because after all, they were earlier throwbacks. It was a very Victorian era progress myth. So the monogenetic origin of the human race means Adam and Eve. But they deny this. Now let's go to 28. Now, verse 28 is problematical, and we're going to have to spend the rest of our time tonight on this verse. This is often misunderstood in commentaries. Some commentators have argued that verse 28, in verse 28, Paul is using pagan writers... To show that they were aware of truth and that they promulgated truth as far as they went and Paul says, okay, you've come this far, now we're going to move you further. So he ha- makes two quotes. If you have study Bibles, you'll see that he's quoting here uh, two, two Greek writers. or Actually, three Greek writers. The second quote is from, uh, a two, it occurs in two different writer, writers. Um, now, the problem with that is that these guys were Stoics and that the quotes that are in verse 28, in context, talk about Zeus. And in context, depict a pagan, almost pantheistic worldview. So if you're going to argue that verse 28 citations are affirming the validity of the writers, you've got a big problem because you can't do it too hard because if you do it too hard, you're going to say, does Paul affirm the paganism of these guys? I don't think so, knowing Paul. So there's some other way you've got to interpret verse 28. The best way of interpreting verse 28 is to see verse 28 as an illustration of verse 27. Always go back to context. Now what was the last clause in verse 27 talking about? blind men groping after God. Verse 28 starts with F-O-R-4. Here's an illustration of blind men groping after God. What he's quoting in verse 28 is the pagan poets to show that these guys were blind men groping. That is, they had in the back of their heads enough God consciousness to know there was something out there but that because they're unbelievers, they were suppressing the truth and came out with nonsense. What he does then is he quotes from a pagan writing, actually two pagan writings, to show that in the middle of the paganism, there is a searching for an answer other than paganism. These are blind men groping. It's not that he's being uh, affirming in verse 28 the validity of what they're doing. He's simply giving them illustrations of verse 27. And he concludes then in verse 29 with a conclusion saying that if we really are offspring of God and your pagan writers keep thinking of man as sort of similar to the gods and kind of related to them? He says, if we're related to them, why do you think that they're results of man? See that? Look at the end of verse 29. We, uh, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, comma. Now, that's the clause. Look at the last clause of verse 29. Because that's the one, that's the heart of his, of his point. How can you argue that the gods who were formed by the art and thought of man, how can you argue that if we're the offspring, we're an offspring of our own offspring? That's what he's arguing. He says, how foolish. Your gods and gods, you're saying you create out of your own hands. You have to admit, who built the Parthenon? It wasn't built by Zeus. Who who carved all those statues? They didn't carve themselves. You carved them with your own hands. Now, having said that, why then, in your pagan writings, you're always talking about, well, we're the offspring of the gods. We come out of them. But they're coming out of you. So, really, verse 29 is a profound observation of the inherent self-contradictory nature of unbelief. And what we're saying tonight is that Paul is dismantling his hearer's worldview. He is not just defending the faith. When he gets done, he's dropped some pretty good-sized bombs on the target. And it's messy after they're done. He has pitted the frame of reference that we have gotten. We've gone through this creation, fall, flood, covenant, call of Abraham, all the rest. He selectively picked up the bullets out of this position, this position, this position, put it in his gun and used them. Bang, 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 bang. And you'll see he picked up a lot of bullets in what area of the framework? The creation framework. So that's where he's getting most of his ammunition from. And he's doing that deliberately because he knows you cannot talk about Jesus Christ and the gospel. We haven't got to the gospel yet here, folks. He hasn't got to the gospel. This is all preliminary to the gospel. Because you can't talk about Jesus, you can't talk about resurrection, until after the God concept is correct. Now, let's close with a little application. We we started tonight with a faith rest drill, and we said one of the things in this faith rest drill is we have to claim a promise, we go through a rationale, we come to confidence or a biblical conclusion. And I said we want to add maybe a little element to this, and that is that as we develop the rationale, we want to see the ridiculousness of what we are tempted to do. The ridiculousness of what we're being solicited to trust in. The utter self contradictoriness of unbelief. And so when we finish Acts 17, think of how you would be if you were one of the Athenians and you were listening to this guy basically dismantle you. You would probably be angry. You would probably become very defensive before this guy got through his talk if you hadn't already picked up a rock. Because he's striking at the very heart of what you believe. He's striking away at the fact that you have so desperately, as an unbeliever, you would have so desperately suppressed this knowledge of God. And yet you're angry because you know in your heart of hearts that what he says is true. And every time he mentions it, it grates something down deep. And you're, in one sense, ashamed and embarrassed by the art all over the place. At one time you thought this was wonderful. You were proud as an Athenian to live in this city with a great art. People would come from hundreds of miles to see this. And then you have this little Jew that comes into town. And he dares to say that your art reveals the fact that you are a liar. You have deliberately created this stuff to replace the God of the creation that you're fleeing. You've gone to wonderful extremes. Some people don't do it as well as you have. You're very skilled people. He's not knocking their skills. He's not knocking their intellect. He's not calling them stupid in the sense of IQ. He is calling them stupid and fools in the sense of their spiritual orientation. And this is the sort of thing we want to use in our own hearts to discredit those thoughts that come in and try to undercut the Word of God and its authority in our lives. Father, we thank you that you have given us the Scriptures. We ask that you make us faithful believers who will utilize the faith and tear down strongholds and cast down every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. May we learn from your great Apostle and from how the Holy Spirit worked in his life in this confrontation in the city of Athens long ago. that we might remember to cycle the doctrine of the Word of God, of your history, of the great events down through the corridors of time, and learn that as we cycle that through our hearts, that we strengthen our faith. And at the same time, we cast down the opposite thought, the self-contradictory foolishness of rebellion and unbelief. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. We'd like to uh, stay up for a little bit for Q and A. We'll entertain questions this time. if you'd like to bring up? Any questions? Yes, fine. I know the feeling. <laughs> I don't think he, uh, the question is, uh, in, in page 22 where you're talking about the power of God as the Holy Spirit, I, I think it's more <clears throat> the way the word dunamis is used in the Greek text in association um, with the work of the Spirit. It's, it's not making a big theological thing and identifying omnipotence with just the Holy Spirit, if that's what you mean. It's distributed. Omnipotence would be a, a characteristic of all three. And now in the Christian way of life, it's always the... Uh, and that's one of the things we'll be studying this year, is the uh, life of Christ and how that's related to the Holy Spirit. And that gets tricky. That's a hard concept. because. The the life of Christ is something that proceeds from the fact that he is God-man. Remember we said that that's why we did the God-man before we got into the New Testament, because the New Testament epistles presume that we know that Jesus is God and man. Well, the life of Christ is the righteous life that he lived that is shared through the new race in him analogously to the Adamic life that's shared in the fallen race in Adam. And then the problem is, well, yeah, well, the Holy Spirit gets involved because who is it that regenerates? Who is it that indwells? Who is it that baptizes? Who is it that seals? Who is it that gives spiritual gifts? Who is it that does the filling of the Holy Spirit? And who was it that was given in Pentecost when the church was formed? So the Holy Spirit becomes... um, the active member of the Trinity in this age, in this dispensation, based on the work of Christ. And Christ is also indwelling. And so we have to be sure we honor all members of the Trinity in this thing. It's just that we also have to respect the fact that the church age is a unique age in that it's the first age in history in which every believer is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Whatever that term, indwelt, carries all kinds of connotations. But in the Old Testament, that's not true. The Holy Spirit did not indwell every believer. Now, you obviously had a ministry in their life. I mean, these people had, were circumcised in their heart, which is corresponding to regeneration. And it's always been a, a shady area of theology Because the Old Testament really doesn't give us the details the New Testament does. Except you have these statements where Jesus said, He was with you. And he uses two Greek prepositions. The Holy Spirit was with you and shall be in you. So there's clearly a shift that happens. And that's why rooted into where we're going is dispensationalism. It's a new dispensation. Something happened at Pentecost that was not true prior to Pentecost even of the disciples. And so your question actually opens up the whole question of the Christian way of life and what this age is all about. And see, that's the other thing. Involved in this is, and that's why eschatology is so important. You know, people say, well, you know, eschatology, there's lots of views of eschatology. Well, it means a lot because it means, what is the mission of the church? If you are a post-millennialist, and you believe that the function of the church age is to introduce the millennium uh... directly socially politically you're going to be a uh... state church political institutional christian because you're forced to do that because that's the way you're saying it's a post-millennial eschatology um, this is why in protestant reformation you had state churches. You had a state church in England. You had a state church in Holland. You had one in Massachusetts. Basically, you had one. It wasn't totalitarian, but it was congregational. Ask Roger Williams what happened when he crossed the line. Um, so, or Ann Hutchins went down to, Thomas Hooker went down into Connecticut. So, So, there were these state churches, but the state churches grew out of their eschatology. It was very natural. If the church is nothing more than another version of Israel, think about it. Israel was a nation. If the church is an extension of Israel, the church must have a national identity somehow. But see, dispensationally, if the church is not an extension of Israel, if the church, in fact, is something different than Israel, then it may not be a nation, and its mission in society may be different. And that's a big, a big difference that's going on here. It's all related to eschatology. And that's why I know some of you when I, a couple, two years ago, we went in the Old Testament. Remember we went through millennialism, and postmillennialism. And I explained that, and I explained it in terms of the Old Testament. And I said later on, you'll see why that's so important. And at the time, we just kind of waltzed on, and that's fine. But you'll find out this year why that was so important back there. Because that hinges on it and how it relates to your question, Mike, is that whatever the Holy Spirit does to empower us, it's to empower us to do something. And the mission, the question is, what is the mission that he is performing? Is it to take over society progressively? Is it to win individuals to Jesus Christ and leave it at that? Is it to win individuals to Jesus Christ, and then through their ministry, they have a ministry in the invisible realm around us of spiritual impact that does have results, but it's a sort of an indirect approach. Why in the New Testament do we have the fact mentioned more than once that the angels are curious about this dispensation? Something was done at Pentecost that the angels don't really understand and apparently have not been told by God what he is doing and so they have to understand what is going on by watching us. That wasn't true in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament they had angel meetings all the time. They were intimately involved with what's going on. All of a sudden now you get this queer group called the church. And now the angels are going around inspecting, trying to find out what is God doing with these people. You know, they probably look at us and say, Yeah, what is he doing? So, so there's that aspect. There's all kinds of things that happen in the New Testament that didn't happen in the Old. Anything else that we'd like to toss around tonight? Holy Spirit has to be the motive. He has to provide the motive. What you will find interesting is that in historical, in the history of Christianity, there's always been a tendency to split the work of the Holy Spirit away from the Word of God. And remember back when we were in the Old Testament, I kept going over that little verse in Proverbs, Proverbs 123, where it's a picture of the teacher, and the teacher says, uh, I will uh, I will reveal my spirit to you, I will pour out my I will pour out my spirit, and I will make my words known to you. And they said it was parallelism. And you want to watch that because the word pour out the spirit is used right on Pentecost. But simultaneously with the pouring out of the Spirit, what was happening? People were hearing the gospel. There was content. There was content that could be trusted and believed. So there's no fracturing between the Word of God and the Spirit. And this is why in Colossians and Ephesians you lay those two books side by side and you you watch the argument in both books and when Paul gets down to be filled with the Spirit, you know the command in Ephesians 5.18, you watch in Colossians where it happens and he says, and let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. So now, in the same argument, so clearly those are, those are equivalent expressions. And the thing you do, you have to keep balanced between the filling of the Spirit and letting the Word of Christ dwell richly in your heart. Those two are related. The Holy Spirit never does anything apart from the Word. And the Word can do nothing apart from the Spirit. Those two are wedded. It's like Debbie was saying. You can know what you're supposed to do. That's the Word of God. But there has to be a motive to do what you know to be true. And that's the Holy Spirit. So both are are inseparable. And they both, from time to time, the New Testament will emphasize one, then they'll emphasize the other. They'll flip from one place to the other. Just because truth of God is so manifold, you, you know, you just go around and, you know, there's tomatoes here and there's peas here. There's all kinds of parts to the crop. And that's not to say that this crop is more valuable than this crop. It's just that it's manifold. God is manifold in his working. Okay? Anything else, yes. Laura. Do you think that religious reasons can do apologetics at the Because if you have a way to ask the question I am is that people can ask. Okay. good question. That is, is apologetics is apologetics identical to evangelism? I would have to say no because they both they both focus on different things, but they're related. Um if you look at Acts, I think the easiest way to look at that is in Acts, the church was really not interested in missions or evangelism. Um, people always love to say, I get back to the book of Acts. Well, frankly, if you look study carefully, the book of Acts, the only reason the church did anything was because what? Persecution. Remember, what drove the church out of Jerusalem? Because they were great missionaries. No, it wasn't that at all. There were some individuals that did it, but basically God had to kick the church in its butt to get it moving out of Jerusalem. And then finally, what did he have to do to get them out of the Palestine? Destroy the temple and have to place it in a big mess in AD 70. So, God had to foment evangelism. And the evangelism would lead, as it did in Acts 17, to people counterattacking it. And it would lead to people asking more questions. The only thing that you want to be careful of is in Second, in First Peter 3:15, it says, "Sanctify the Lord God in your heart, and be ready always to give an answer to every man." In the context of that passage, where it talks about giving an apologia or an apology, that's talking about there of a spouse. Talking about that's the, that's the context immediately prior to that. It's the unbelieving. Man and a believing wife, married, and it's talking about her and her life Uh, It has an effect. So finally, after a while, this guy—he may be stupid. I mean, men are kind of reticent to talk about those things. Um, You know, finally, he falls over and asks her a question. And what Peter's saying is, it's going to take a lot of patience on your part as a woman, till this guy ever opens his mouth and talks to you about these things. And so be ready when that happens. So there, it's a case not of pressing the point verbally, because if you press the point verbally in a lot of those situations, it's just water off a duck's back. So evangelism politics are related, and you are right that it requires probably some aggressive uh, moves by us, um, maybe in the form of baited speech, um, maybe in the form of uh, provocative actions from time to time to stimulate questions. The point, however, is that if the unbeliever isn't asking questions, they probably aren't open to listen. You can catch the pearls before swine. So, but apologetics is related to evangelism in that apologetics is as you see here, it defends the truth and negates unbelief. And I think that apologetics is related to Christian life. Because I think that what goes on in the forum goes on here. And that we daily are involved in the battle of belief and unbelief. And we ought to be using the same tools we use when it comes up in social conversation or external situations. So I think it's powerful to see how unbelief is unmasked it is defanged it is deflated in the scriptures to a level of foolishness and the reason once once it is deflated to the level of foolishness its tempting power becomes very very weak it can become a roaring lion and physically assault you but that's that's different from internal doubts, internal eating away at the foundation. And there's a difference between those two. Okay, well, our time is up tonight and don't forget, next week, we'll have, I'm sorry, we'll have to skip one and then we'll be back. Finish up Acts. And if you want to read a little bit ahead, we're going to, I'll try, try to have the first handout, by the way, in the framework, new, new framework section. We're going to deal with 1 Corinthians 2 that was written right after Acts 17 or written about a subject that happened after Acts 17.